0: Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply change disruptions, urbanization, and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India holds the G20 presidency. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world. To examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. I'm your host Shibani Mehta and in this episode of Interpreting India, we'll take a closer look at gender parity in India's parliament. The 17th Lok Sabha has 78 women MPs, the highest since independence. Has the increase in women's participation been meaningful? What narratives of equality and citizenship have framed the issue of electoral representation? Do women MPs carry the burden of shifting welfare policy in a gender-sensitive direction? Joining us today to discuss these questions and more is Professor Shireen M. Rai. Professor Rai is a Distinguished Research Professor of Politics and International Relations at SOAS, University of London. She is a fellow of the British Academy. In 2022, she was awarded the Distinguished Contribution Prize by the British International Studies Association for her contribution to the promotion of excellence in the discipline of international studies over a substantial period of time. Professor Shireen Rai, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you so much for making the time for this conversation. Uh, We've been planning it for a while, and I'm really glad that we're finally able to do it.
1: Thank you, Shivani, for inviting me, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: So, we're recording this episode just a couple of days before the new parliament building uh, in New Delhi is going to be inaugurated, and there's a lot of news coverage around it, who's attending, who's not attending and things like that. Uh, But it's also a big shift in India's history. Uh, The current parliament building or Sansad Bhavan, I believe, was uh, completed in 1927. So this is almost a century later uh, that the parliament is moving to a new uh, building. but it's not just that the parliament is also a symbol of India's democracy, and you've uh, sort of you've been quoted in a lot of places uh, where you say that parliaments not only represent, they're not only a symbolic representation of the country, but they're also a mirror of the society and the nation at large. So what would you say that that is being reflected today?
1: What a great question to start with, uh, Shivani. Thank you. So um, I think it was Winston Churchill who once said that uh, we make buildings and then buildings make us. And I take that quite seriously uh, because I think architecture is philosophically driven very often. So when um, Edwin Lutyens was uh, uh, asked to draw the plans for the council house, as it was called, the first building, um, parliamentary building, uh, Hastings, Lord Hastings said to him, this is India, there's a lot of good architecture in India and you should go and learn something about it and see if you can reflect it, because after all, this is a building of, counts, you know, uh, um, a council building for representatives of the Indian states. And Lachan's response was that I don't want, uh, India doesn't have an architecture. Uh, it has different ways of building. And anyway, I'm not interested in um, this. I'm interested in building an imperial architecture. Now, in the context of um, British colonialism, that made sense in a way, right? I mean, the people who were funding it, the people who were building it, the people who moved it from Calcutta to New Delhi, uh, there was a new element of politics as well as the history of colonialism that was going to be represented. And yet, in the end, he did. Include sort of things like Chatris and, and uh, the lattice work and all sorts of things. But that was his approach. It was that it is an imperial India. After independence, we know that that building was kept as um, mm-hmm. our parliament, but it was modified. And the way in which uh, it was modified was, of course, in terms of who, which bodies were there uh, occupying it, but also the story that the in a post-colonial Indian state told about India itself. And I've written in a, a, a paper about the murals and statues in the Indian parliament, and we know whether it was Savarkar's portrait or it was um, uh, the various statues in 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 the Indian Parliament that there were a lot of political discussion. Bhagat Singh's statue, for example, had a lot of um, conflict around it. So parliament and buildings actually are as representative of our politics as parliaments are of um, uh, our politics. And in that context, of course, we have to ask the question about why a new parliament now, but also something that I'm really interested in exploring. And as I was saying to you earlier, I'm going to be um, writing on this soon and, sort of, you know, is why does it take the form it does? Why is it placed where it is? And what does it actually symbolize for this current moment of history in India? Um, And I'm also interested in the way in which post-colonial discourse is being mobilized by the current regime in order to justify sort of, you know, uh, the building of this new parliament. So I think it'll be, um, well, once the inauguration is done, I mean, I've, I've looked at uh, it online, obviously, I, I haven't been in. It'll be really interesting to see the philosophical underpinnings and the political context as it develops.
0: I think all of us are, you know, sort of looking at the building as this change and what it means for the country and the nation and what it will represent going forward and hopefully for the next century or longer than that. Um, But I do want to sort of bring up the conversation now to what the building is actually going to be used for and the people there. And um, you mentioned the shift from sort of a colonial narrative to a post-colonial narrative and how that's being used. When it comes to electoral representation, what were the narratives that kind of shaped who would constitute the electoral body, who would be in parliament when India was sort of first taking its step into a, a democracy and becoming a republic?
1: Um, so, of course, the struggle for Indian independence was also a struggle for self-representation. Swaraj, right? And in that context, we know that the Constituent Assembly was set up. And what is interesting is, right from the very beginning, there was a question about um, representation amongst uh, for our parliament. And so out of 299 members of the Constituent Assembly, of which we, as we know, um, Babasarban Ambedkar was was chair, uh, there were only 15 women members. Now you could say, oh, well, at least there were 15. But the question for me is why just 15, right? Um, And what is the impact of a group on the debates in the Constituent Assembly, a group that is very small but also quite elite? So one of the things, of course, everyone was absolutely committed to was fundamental rights of Indian citizens, right? Right. Uh, But who should be the citizens and how should those citizens be represented? Those were the tricky questions. And one of the things that comes out very clearly in the debates is that the women there did not want, or rather I should rephrase that, that the women wanted their citizenship on an equal basis to men. As a result... They argued that they did not want reservations for women, while at the same time, the Constituent Assembly was discussing and indeed introduced reservations, as we know, for scheduled castes and scheduled tribes in India. Now, you could argue, well, why did they feel, given how small the number was, 15 out of 299 people? Why did they feel that? And what were they actually saying about the marginalized in India? The first thing that they were saying was that they were not marginalized. Now, their marginalization could be Understood simply in what Hannah Pitkin, who sadly passed away this month, earlier this month, and she has written an amazing uh, piece of work, which I will refer to in a minute, but is what we call descriptive representation, like how how many so counting the numbers in a way, and they said, well, we represent half the country, they're you know fifty percent women and fifty percent men, and so. We are a majority and we don't need to be seen to be unequal to men needing support in that way. But they were also quite conscious that scheduled castes and scheduled tribes did need support. And so they went to, you know, and they supported, supported that. Now there, what I want to emphasize is that these, as I said, women were elite women they didn't seem to think that there are women who are from Schedule Caste and Schedule Tribe, but there are also poor women, Muslim women. There are women sort of who are educated, those who are not educated. So that diversity of profile was not seen to be relevant to the debate of women's reservation bill. And think about it where we are now in terms of the long shadow those debates have cast on the way in which women's representation has been dealt with, in particular, the reservation bill. Where the debates have been about exactly that, we should have representation for women because women are so underrepresented. Um, As you well know, Sort of, you know, in uh, the Indian Parliament today, we've got less than 10%. Sort of, you know, like we've got, um, what, uh, 102 women in the Indian Parliament. There are 78 in the Lok Sabha, 24 in the Rajya Sabha. So they're a small minority, right? Uh, and yet, The reservation for women, and and this has been after 70 uh, odd years of of India's independence or since the Constituent Assembly debates, anyway. And so the question for us are twofold. One, how does the diversity of women get reflected in any kind of policymaking um, and of legislation? Uh, And second, how do we unpack the category of women? Because if we don't do that, And of course, equally, category of men. If we don't do that, then we get into all sorts of problems, which then we see reflected in our policy debates. So on the one hand, there is the creamy layer debate for against reservation. On the other hand, there are debates about how women's reservations are not going to reflect the diversity of women, especially of um, uh, SEST groups. So these are complex debates, but actually I wanted to kind of historicize them by talking about uh, the constituent assembly debates.
0: No, thank you for that. And I think that was the bit that kind of perplexed me when I was reading your book about women not wanting any kind of reservation. Um... while fully understanding the need for reservations for the scheduled caste and the scheduled tribe. Uh, But different times, and I guess for me to imagine myself in that era, I I couldn't get my head around it because the context today is so different. Um, And like you mentioned, the number of women in parliament has increased. It is still a minority. But if you look purely at numbers, it is an increase. There is progress. So would you say that it's been meaningful, the contribution of women in parliament over the years? Of course
1: it has been meaningful, right? That's why I think it is important to look at the long history of women's participation in politics in India. Uh, Despite the fact that the women in the Constituent Assembly, or even if we look further back, you know, the leadership of women in the national movement, these were mostly, those who were visible were mostly elite women. Right, so you know anybody who talks about women in Indian politics talks about Sarojini Naidu, right, or or Vijay Lakshmi Pandit. or you know, so these are women who, of course, rose to prominence, but there were thousands of women who participated in uh, the national struggle. We know that it it is a history that is being retrieved over the last. Few decades now um, uh, by feminist scholars and activists. um, And their impact has been considerable. So let me then go back to Hannah Pitkin. As I said, she is a scholar of uh, women's representation or gendered representation, if you want to call it that. And she talked about three elements of representation which are really important to consider when we consider representation as a concept, but also as practice. So the first is descriptive representation, which as I said, means how many numbers Mm. are there uh, in an institution which are in this context, men and women, right? The second, she says, "Is because it describes, you know, it, if you tell numbers. So when I say there are only hundred and two women in in Parliament today, uh, or I should sort of, you know, um, say there are so many more men in Parliament, it tells us. It describes a number, but it also tells us, and uh, you know, we have to ask questions then about why, etc. So there's that descriptive representation." But then the question that you asked just now is what she calls substantive representation, right? Substantive representation in the sense that do these numbers make a difference? If there are more women, will it make a difference? Do women do different sort of politics? Do women support different laws? Do women actually, or their presence, in parliament and in institutions, um, lead to better outcomes for women. So that's the substantive representation. And then something that hasn't been, um, till very recently, something that hasn't been um, discussed so much, she says that actually representation is also symbolic. Now, you started with that, right? You started by saying, hey, here's a building. What does this symbolize? And for Hannah Pitkin, it was about sort of, you know, what do, uh, and I've done a lot of work on this, uh, what do the ceremonies and rituals of our institutions, what do the aesthetics, what do the symbols uh, represent in terms of gender politics? So if we take all these three things together, which is what I've argued in my book, Performing Representation. then what we find is that the the uh, substantive representation uh, and symbolic representation actually are quite dependent on their tiny numbers in Parliament, right? Now, if we look at the another reservation bill, which is which was passed,
0: right? The Grand Panchayat.
1: Yeah, the gram Panchayat level, and also I think it's like one further out, but not the Legislative Assembly. But, but the Panchayat uh, bill, which was passed very quickly, makes me think, why was that passed so quickly? And why has the reservation bill at the national and state level, now it was in, been hanging around since 1996? So what went on there? So going back to that, there's been some research, quite a lot now, Uh, started by Chattopadhyay and Duffalo, Esther Duffalo, who won the Nobel Prize last time for economics, uh, which suggests that 30% of women in panchayats did make a difference, right? It made a difference as to what was focused on, how were panchayats run, and what therefore are the consequences for both men, but of course for women on the ground. And they did a randomized uh, trial, and it was, it, and you know, and also there's been quite a lot of uh, qualitative work done on that. And so uh, my question to yours, my answer to your question about have they made a difference is, in some ways, yes, but in some ways, no. And the reason why uh, it is so is because their very presence in parliament has raised these questions about representativeness of parliament and representation of women in parliament, right? So without their representation, however small, we would not be asking these questions, right? Because really, if you think about it, If the Parliament makes a claim that it is a representative institution, and then over a long period of time, women are so marginal to its representation, then you have to ask questions about the Parliament itself, right? So... I think that, so that is one way in which women have uh, participated. Of course, in the book, we also look at debates that women participate in. And what we found was that women were much more active in and were allowed much more space to talk about what were called kind of women concerning legislation as opposed to more kind of, you know, things like defense or the economy. So that brings me to the question, what are the political parties doing in parliament to ensure that their representatives, both men and women, get enough time on the the floor to to participate in debates? What are they doing to stop behavior in parliament, which routinely sees men shouting out women or being patronizing towards women members? Or women members feeling hesitant to talk about. So there are some ways in which women have been able to participate and to, to make a difference. But in many ways, they haven't because parliament itself as an institution continues to be a gendered institution. It has got sort of, you know, what is being called in other countries like the UK where I'm, I'm based. Uh, institutional sexism of parliament, uh, which is then performed in different ways in everyday uh, interactions between members of parliament and um, its officers. Um, so that's what I would say to that.
0: Um, there were so many threads that I wanted to pick up uh, from on uh, in your answer, but I think I'll just go with the last bit. Um, I noticed that you said that women were allowed to speak on subjects that were uh, of importance to women, uh, whereas maybe not so much on defense and finance and foreign policy. I wanted to ask you, because you have spoken to a lot of MPs over the years, sort of uh, gone through their journeys with them, how how has it affected women's participation in Parliament. Um, And I I was saying that I come from a very sort of urban example where you're, you know, you often talk about boardroom and boardroom politics and how women CEOs have to be louder and more assertive uh, to be heard. Um, I was just wondering if you had any insight on how that plays out. So it's, it's been
1: fascinating, actually, because I have been tracking uh, women parliamentarians for over 20 years now, and I have seen quite a lot of change. Younger women and urban younger women are obviously, you know, picking up on these feminist debates. They are highly educated. They are uh, quite sure of their own ground as I said, you you are quite right, much more about urban women, younger women, educated women, middle-class women. So we are still talking about the diversity of women in uh, the Indian parliament along grounds of class and caste in particular, right? Um, And what I found was that, or I should say, Despite that diversity, one thing that remains consistent in my, my reading is that women have had to negotiate their private and public lives very carefully in order to reach parliament. Now, one of the key elements of our debate in India about, uh, about uh, uh, families and parliament has been the dynastic debate, right? Oh, these women, they all got their families, their political families, their backing is political. And what I found was actually that is not entirely the case in the sense that they needed support of their families and they could only get to parliament if they had that support. Menka Gandhi, for example, or or any other of the well-known women, the kind of support they get from their families is very different from the support that ordinary MPs get from their families. Now, that is a very practical support. It could be supporting them in going places to into their constituencies to campaign and then to to look after the constituency. It could be the mother coming to Delhi when the woman comes to Delhi as an MP and supporting to look after her children. It could be sisters, but also, of course, it is husbands and and fathers-in-law who will give a kind of a sort of support, which is, yes, you can do this. You know, we are behind you without which women would find it very difficult. So the family uh, is not just dynastic. It is also about about this everyday practice of politics, supporting that, Uh, which means then that uh, we need to shift the lens of family a little bit to make it much much more everyday. And also to suggest, it suggests to me anyways, that women are constantly having to make those decisions about what they can and cannot do within that framework of patriarchy. Still, the familial patriarchy continues, but they are able to negotiate that, which doesn't mean that they are victims of the system, but it means that their agency is very much about negotiations rather than pushbacks secondly I think sort of you know what I what I found was of course that um, India is a huge country as we know sitting in Delhi it seems just kind of you know traveling around Delhi is so difficult but think about women representation uh, representatives traveling across rural India we have Think about the size of our constituencies. We have to think about how these women have been uh, able to travel or not travel across constituencies. We have to think about also institutionally how women MPs or male MPs, for that matter, what is their role as opposed to MLAs and Panchayat members. So what kind of work do they do? And when I went to interview these women, and, and I think it also for male MPs, for example, the, the kind of issues that they were dealing with every day, you know, One of their constituents, son has lost their job. Will you please help me for that? My daughter is getting married. Will you help me for that? Oh, my village doesn't have a, a tap. Will you help me? Now, should they be dealing with that? You know, what is the level at which we want our MPs to work? And that produces a lot of strain, as I said, for both men and women. But given the other challenges that women have, Um, of travel, as I've already said, of negotiating families as a, it becomes a real pressure on them. Um, Finally, I think sort of what I discovered when I was, and my colleague, Carol Sperry, she actually was um, uh, also traveling with uh, some women uh, for their campaigns, is that the level of security around them is very variable, So violence in campaigning, but also violence in social media, which is now obviously, you know, total abuse, total threats online to their security, their bodily presence in some spaces being a real problem. So the diversity of women in diversity of spaces, then creates big issues of security. Because securitization of our spaces is, I would suggest, also presents different questions to us, right? That if they are representatives of the people, what are they going to, why should they be so far away from the people, right? Uh, but at the same time, how do you deal with this growing violence on social media? And that is very sexist and very violent when directed towards women. So those are the challenges that I noticed that these women were facing when when uh, uh, I was talking to them.
0: And I think, I mean, all of us in our own private personal lives have to negotiate with similar challenges. But of course, like you said, as members of parliament, it's, it's more enhanced and, um, it's, it's at such a large scale that we as a society haven't had to deal with or haven't thought about collectively. Um, and I was also thinking while you were speaking about, it's not just the gender identity that plays out. It's also your religious identity, your um, caste identity, and anything else. So, how do you think? I mean, that's one thing that women MPs have to negotiate with, right? Am I a woman first, or am I a person of this religion, of this political party? Even if it's member of Rajya Sabha or Lok Sabha, like which identity kind of tops or trumps the others? Um, and in this kind of negotiating with the multiple identities, how do you think it affects policy debate? Um, and more specifically, I think my question is, have in in your sort of work, have you felt that women carry this burden of, you know, pushing for more welfare uh, schemes or, like you said earlier, that women are given more space to talk about women centric issues in parliament. But then, is there this burden to kind of be on the right side of the debate, uh, even if politically or ideologically you may not uh, agree with that position?
1: No, I think that's a very good question, Shivani, because I think that when we talk about women, or actually when we talk about parliament, surprisingly, we talk very little about political parties right? And we also talk very little about ideologies that women um, ascribe to, right? Just like men ascribe to different ideologies, so do women. So let's take the issue of um, women's equality. If you talk to a BJP woman, and I did, to many actually, including Sushma Swaraj many times, they will give you a very different take on equality than if you were to talk to uh, somebody on the left like Brindhakarath or sort of, you know, other left uh, women. One would say equal but different. Men have different roles. Women have different roles. Both of them are equal. They are just like brother, sister, and we should... These are, this is also our tradition. Women are very well uh, uh, embedded in those traditions, and they need to defend those traditions. And uh, we are not saying that uh, they are not equal, but they're just different. And they have different roles to perform in society. And the other side would say, no, actually, uh, women and men are equal in law, or should be equal in law, and we will fight for that women and men should be equal in that. There should be no gender pay gap. We should fight for that. Women and men should be able to choose their own partners, um, issues around sexuality, all those kind of things. And so there are very different approaches. And of course, as we know, different parties represent those different approaches in, in many different ways. So I'm always puzzled by the fact that Though Parliament is so deeply embedded in the party system, when we study Parliament, and it's the fault of the scholars, not anybody else, we very often keep the parties out. So if there is a woman sitting in Parliament, does she, it's a good question, does her identity as a Kashmiri Muslim trump her identity as a Congress sort of MP, right? And I would say that the party system, the whip system in in parliament itself, the committee system in parliament, the system that sort of, you know, draws up legislation and then sort of, you know, reviews it in, in committees. And then, of course, the debate in the House itself. All those things matter when we talk about what trumps what. And very often we would find that women would like men, would be whipped into the party position. And I'm not surprised by that, because they're part of the institutional system. There are very few moments, and there's a lovely photograph of uh, Sushma Suraj, Brinda Karat, uh, Najma Heptullah, raising their hands, if you if you uh, Google it, after the first reading of the, the reservation bill, when it past you know and the rajya and they were just so happy together so there on certain issues what i found was that women mps across party lines they could uh, come together that issue was not only reservation it could be also um, violence against women domestic violence in particular though even there sort of you know uh if things become wobbly in terms of of um, cross party um, uh, solidarity, um, if if the party whips uh, sort of flex their muscles, but on major issues, whether it is Kashmir, whether sort of it's about sort of reservations, whether it is sort of issues around defense or foreign policy, of course they are whipped into party politics. So they represent, that is why I think that there is something to be said, which feminist scholars call critical mass. You know, when you have a critical mass in institutions, that's why reservations are important, right? Because there are two positions there. One is the position of Edmund Burke. The, the legislator and philosopher of the UK. And when he said, if I'm uh, uh, representing my constituents, I represent all my constituents. I don't represent just the people who voted for me. So it doesn't matter whether I'm a man or a woman or or black or white. I'm." But we know from history that that is not the case. And that is why the reservation argument. So I think that... It is precisely because of the debates being embedded in party politics, embedded in ideological politics. But at the same time, as you said, you know, women carrying that burden to justify their, not only their presence, but also their ambition to have more women in parliament. And that happens not just with women. It also happens, creamy layer of, of, um, uh, caste-based reservations. Oh, what do they ever do for, for the lower caste, right? It happens in the UK if you are a member of the black and ethnic minority community. It's about like, what, do you, what have you done? So rather than recognizing the broader picture, we individualize things. We make them personal. I'm not suggesting that personal is not political. Of course it is. But it's only so much you can do As a woman. And that is why my emphasis has been very much on institutions. And at towards the end of of, um, the book, uh, Carol Sperry and I, we argue that the parliament should be seen as a workplace. A workplace to make good decisions. Which is different from just assuming that it knows what it's doing and is claim making as a representative institution,
0: which of course it is. I think that's a very interesting way to look. At that. I'm going to think about the parliament as a place of work from now on. And I think that will change a lot of the questions that you ask and the expectations that you sort of have from the institution. I also wanted to focus a little bit on the other side of things, which is, uh, voters. Um, we, India has seen an increase in the number of women coming out and voting. Um, is there any possible link between representation and voter turnout when it comes to women? Or are they two independent things that are just happening on their own?
1: I think more research needs to be done to answer that question fully. Uh, But again, going back to my experience of, of interviewing women MPs, it was very clear that they felt that they made a difference to their women constituents. So I was talking with one person who said to me, she said, when I go to my constituency, women come and see me and talk to me about their problems. And they see me as one of them. They, I hold their hands and I kind of wipe their tears. I mean, obviously we can sort of, you know, reflect on that. But the fact is that I suppose what I'm saying here is that it might it might make a big difference that women feel that there are more women in parliament or at least in politics and that they are being debated about. You know, women's representation is being debated about in our media, on our sort of, you know, in a, uh, through scholarship, through activism. And I think that um, that might have an impact on women voters coming out in larger numbers and voting. Uh, but as, as I said, I don't I suspect that sophologists would find that there are more complexities to that. Right. Because we find that in some elections, women vote more and in others, they vote less. But what is consistent in India, as opposed to the UK, for example, is that our voting rights, uh, uh, voting rates continue to be very high. And to me, that suggests that, well, it could suggest two things. One, an optimism that we should have that our institutions still inspire people to come out and vote. Right? and that should be something that we need to celebrate as a democracy because the concerns for example in the uk is always about small numbers turning up and so we need we need to celebrate but on the other hand i also worry that you know what happens when over and over again people go and vote and think things will change and then they feel that they don't change and women's representation is this, one of those things it has been So on the agenda now for such a long time. And the reservation bill, as I said already, has been on the agenda since 1996. And nothing is shifting on that. So I hope that for the younger generation, that doesn't become, oh well, the politics as usual, therefore what's the point of joining politics? And we should just stay back. Joining politics, both as constituents as voters, but also as representatives. And I hope that it will be the former, that kind of, you know, that hopefulness that will uh, persuade more young women like you to, to have public roles rather than not.
0: I think I want to now sort of go back to what we were talking about earlier and you just touched upon, which is reservation at the panchayat level and, how the bill kind of just sailed through parliament and studies have shown that it, it, it was adopted very easily. Um, it has impacted politics at the Gram Panchayat level in a very positive way. Do you see I mean, of course, the grand panchayat and the national level, very different circumstances, very different conditions. So we can't say that if it's worked at this level, it should work at the national level as well. But why has it been successful at the grand panchayat level and then also been stuck in parliament, like you said, since 1996? Um, is it the way it's, the bill is framed or is it political will? Or just the fact that we're not paying enough attention to it. Yes, so
1: I think we should again. History teaches us many things, right? So when the bill was passed, there was a great deal of support for it from Rajiv Gandhi and the Congress Party. So they pushed it through, basically, and there was it was seen to be a good thing <coughs> for two reasons. One that uh, uh, membership on, in Panchayats, women's membership in Panchayats, was abysmal, and that needed to be addressed. And second, the hope was, and it was talked about a lot, that represent uh, increase of representatives in panchayats would lead those women to then scale up, right? That those women will then stand for, after a few years, stand for the, uh, as MLAs, and those were. So this was a pipeline problem right? So we don't have a long pipeline. So therefore, we keep saying that, you know, there are no good women uh, politicians that we can bring up to um, the parliament level. So this will solve our pipeline problem. But also at the same time, underrepresentation of women, will it affect? Yes, we will have women at the grassroots level making change happen. I don't know whether you remember, but the media was so vicious at that time about women. It was all about that they don't, you know, that uh, their men. Can't, there were so many reports, and those reports were true in in many cases that women were just signing the register. Their their husbands were going in their place. They never talked in the panchayat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And even at that stage, in a paper that I wrote, I said, you know, participation doesn't happen all at once, suddenly. You have to wait and sustain that participation. And that is where the bill becomes or the act becomes really important. If you do not have an institutional legislative framework to support continued throughput of women in in these institutions, women are not going to say yes to such a vicious campaign against them. They're just going to say, oh, forget it, you know, I'm not going. So over a period of time, so all these positive reports that are coming out now were not there when the bill was passed in 92. On the contrary, it was sort of, you know, I remember hearing a, a paper in CSDS where the person had done Wonderful fieldwork, but very disturbing. uh, Some of the very disturbing outcomes, including the rise in domestic violence against these women because men felt threatened in the home. So I come back to that issue of what is the relationship between our public and the private, right? And how does that change over time? Right. After a while, the woman would say, I'm the panchayat, sir, panch. Why are you talking in front of me, you know, without my permission? just So it has taken time, but the framework of the act and the legislation has meant that there has been, because panchayats cannot function if you don't have the proper representation. So then eventually women get confident, then they start. The second thing is about the pipeline. I don't think that that has worked and that hasn't worked again because of several reasons. One is, again, the family, right? Women find it much more difficult to leave the family to go to the the capital city, whether it is at the state level or at the national level because they're so, what we call in political economists, we call social reproductive work, which is everyday care work that they do in the family, has to be still organized. They might not even do it, but they have to organize it. And I found that something that came up all the time in, in my interviews that, you know, when the, it was the male MP who had to move, that was not a problem because the woman would move with him. And then the household will be in Delhi or in Patna or wherever. Um, But when the woman was there, she was constantly shuttling between places because the home remained where the male breadwinner was, which is the man in the family. So I think that meant that that was a problem for the pipeline issue. Um, And that has meant that, again, we see a big distinction between uh, panchay- women in the panchayats and women in parliament in terms of class, in terms of education, in terms of wealth. Right? Um, and so my feeling is that the sustainability of women in politics clearly in, has to be seen in the context of how institutions both familial institutions, but more importantly, in the context of our conversation, institutions such as parliament are good workplaces for them to work in. Without that, it becomes very difficult to attract women into politics.
0: Um, Thank you for that. I think um, this has been a very, very enlightening conversation. Um, I think the final note Things take time and uh, we just need to persevere and be persistent and be impatient, but also give it some time. Uh, And yeah, hopefully things, not hopefully, I think definitely things will improve. Uh, But I think the biggest takeaway for me is going to definitely be that the parliament is also a place of work. And uh, maybe that's how we need to start thinking about it. Um, Thank you so much, Professor Rai. Thank you for taking the time and uh, thank you for joining us on Interpreting India. Thanks, Shivani.
1: It's been really lovely talking to you.
0: We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, subscribe to Interpreting India on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at carnegieindia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.